0: Well, thrilled that you all are here. Uh, I'm excited to uh, participate in this morning. We're going to head to a time of uh, the Eucharist, communion. Uh, The word Eucharist simply means good gift. And so when we come to communion, we understand the Eucharist as a symbol. It's a picture of Jesus' life, gifted uh, for us, it's a good gift. Jesus' life is a good gift. And so we're going to uh, head towards that time, um, but continue our teaching in the gospel of Matthew, the book of Matthew as we understand it. And so we're spending all of 2022 walking through that, which sometimes when I, for some people when I say that, we're going to spend an entire year walking through the gospel of Matthew. Some people say, really? like an entire year, and uh, I was with a pastor friend earlier this week that we haven't been together in a while, and he's like, hey, what are you guys doing? And I said, well, we're going to spend 2022 going through Matthew. And he's like, the whole book of Matthew? And I said, yeah, and he goes, you're going to do that in a year? And I said, yeah, and he goes, gosh, I would spend like eight months on the Sermon on the Mount. How are you doing the whole thing in a year? Which was my feeling exactly, because we might be going a year, we're getting ready to step into this morning, the Sermon on the Mount. I would be fine if we took a year to go through the Sermon on the Mount. So the idea that we're going through Matthew, if you're thinking, wow, that's a lot or that's a long time, we're going really fast, really fast to be able to get through Matthew in a year. That's, that's my feeling. Um, because we, if we were to sit down and just work our way through it the way, um, it, I mean, it's a lot. And it's beautiful. It's the same thing when people are like, there's a whole schedule so you can read through the Bible in a year. Uh, again, lovely, but oh, whoo, like what kind of fast-paced uh, business is that? Um, so, it's, it's interesting. Um, but we're, 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 we're trekking through. And the reality is the text we're going to be in today that we're going to walk through, we, uh, I want to say it was probably about three years ago uh, as a church, The the text we're walking through today, we actually spent, I think, seven or eight weeks going through, (laughs) and we're going to do it um, all this morning. So we have to, I have to recalibrate how we walk through this, and it's really, really something and good. Uh, And then one other thing I'll say, because it's okay, I can ask for forgiveness later. Um, I didn't ask for permission, but I'll still say it. Grow worried. No one's sweating more than my wife right now. Um, But yesterday was my mom's birthday. So, um, so happy, happy birthday to my my mom. But get this too, um, on the 21st birthday, while some people maybe were having their first um, beverage, my mom was having her first baby. Um, So she gave birth to my sister uh, 53 years ago, so that's what she was doing for 21. Um, I didn't say my mom's age then, you can do the math. Um, (laughs) See, I didn't go that far. Um, That's a good time, so happy birthday, mom, it's great. And so much fun that we get to be in community together as well as just be family, so it's great. It's good. With that, we're going to jump in, and it's wonderful because I want to start off um, with, with a word of prayer and then jump into a little bit of memories of my, my childhood, and then we're going to walk into the scripture and the text, and then I want to highlight a, a comment. I won't talk about the comment, but that was said to me last week that helped me reshape where we're going this morning or how we're going to unpack this morning. Uh, gracious God, we bless you for the gift of gathering. The gift of gathering is your body, the church. Uh, that we can do that, Uh, we uh, are blessed, we are grateful, Uh, and we bless you for that, God. Uh, The fact that we have this space to gather in is a gift, especially when we live in such weather where um, being indoors is really about the only option, and we really are then grateful uh, for a partner Uh, the Three Mile Project, all that they do in this community and for this community and that we can partner with them and then that we can share space for a gathering like this. What a gift. And so we bless you for that, God. Uh, And as we now sink into the scriptures, we desire to hear from you above all else. So may the posture and meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you, and you alone, our Lord, our rock, and our savior. I pray this in Christ's name, amen, and amen. Amen. all right, so my clearest memories of the the church that I had grown up in as a child, um, when I think back to that, what I can remember most clearly is that I was told to confess to God how bad I was and then plead for forgiveness and then ask Jesus into my heart. That was what was walked over and over and over uh, as a kid. From there, so after that, it's God, this is how bad I am. Uh, please forgive me. And then, and then asking Jesus into my heart. Then from there, it was the thou shall not. Thou shall not dance. Mm-mm. Thou shall not listen to rock and roll. Thou shall not swear. Thou shall not go to the movies. Thou shall not... Do any sort of things like that, but what you should do is, or or and thou shall not be active on Sundays. That was a huge one as a kid. We could not be active on Sundays except for participating in three different services on Sunday. There was Sunday school, then there was Sunday morning service, then there was evening service. In between, how many times my brothers and I got in trouble for being outside and throwing the ball around or whatever, hoo one of our neighbors, he uh, he collected frisbees, balls, and stuff like that. He was like 288 years old, and he would walk over to our yard, and he would take our balls from us, and he kept them in a box in his garage, um, Because, and then they would come over, and my mom would tell you, knock on the door, your boy should be inside taking naps. And it's like, it was really quite a treasure. So, um, what I pick up from this is I was a member of the Thou Shall Not Church. Maybe you have experienced that as well. Which is to say, all of that though is my journey began with how not enough I was. It began with what I am not and what I should not do, except to be sure to tell God all my badness. And then, and this is how I understood it, ask a very abstract, glowing and radiant yellow, floating on the clouds with all hair, wearing a bright white bathrobe Jesus into my heart. But I also knew that Jesus was a carpenter, And so I pieced together that he was a magical carpenter who could build a home in my heart. Uh, So that's what I understood. So maybe we get a a couple pictures to give us an idea of what this Jesus is that we learned about, who would be just, whoa, like, whoa, of course we're following this Jesus. How could you not follow this Jesus who glows and floats and is just beaming all the time? Of course, of course. So our wonderful Western art has done uh, a a work there to make it to go, how would we not? And this kinda gets at, uh, as we step into one of the most formative sections of the Bible in my life. Um, I'd like to do something a little bit different this morning and one by backing up a little bit and actually sinking into last week. I wanna bring a little bit more detail to where we were last week because I wanna highlight a couple things. One is because a meaningful comment that was made to me last week about the idea of following Jesus. Why those first disciples, why did they follow Jesus? But understanding the context, they weren't following Jesus because he was floating along the the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't because he was glowing. It wasn't even because they were like, well, he's the Messiah, He's the coming one. They didn't know that. They had no idea. And by the way, the prophets tell us there is nothing about his physical appearance, nothing about him that would draw people to him whatsoever. So it's not because of how he looked. It was not because of how he was glowing or floating or any of that. But the context is really, really important to why they were. So I want to look back at last week a little bit. As Jesus was going along the shore of the, the Lake of Galilee, and he was calling those first four disciples, it's important that we immerse ourselves in the context to how Jesus was calling them and why it was that they responded to the call the way they did. Because it's, it's easy for us to think, well, Jesus, it's Jesus after all. But at this point in the scripture, Jesus wasn't understood to be or known as the Messiah. No one thought that or knew that. Jesus was a construction worker, not royalty either, by the way, and the text does not tell us that he was formally or institutionally recognized as an itinerant rabbi. Education, first and foremost in the first century, was done in the home. The lead teachers were dad and mom, but dad first is your teacher. You learned in the home, and it was done by then the parents. And learning from an itinerant rabbi, that would be like a bonus. That would be kind of like the January series that's taking place at Calvin right now, where you go, we get to go and listen to a speaker, or we learn from someone. That's like an itinerant rabbi might visit your village and you could sit and learn from them for, for an afternoon or a day. But the idea that you didn't, you didn't go to school, you learned in the home, and then if your village had a synagogue, you might do some additional learning in the synagogue. But that is more rare. And this does not minimize learning because it was the pride and still is in many ways of the Jewish people. So, first century historian, Jewish historian Josephus says this Above all, we pride ourselves on the education of our children and regard as the most essential task in life the observance of our laws and of the pious practices based thereupon which we have inherited. And then picking up for this Jewish philosopher Philo, also of the first century, he affirmed this by saying, for looking upon their laws as oracles directly given to them by God himself and having been instructed in this doctrine from their very earliest infancy, they bear in their souls the images of the commandments contained in these laws as sacred. First century, like, oh, education is a big deal. And education began and centered around the text, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament or the Older Testament. I don't like calling it the Old Testament. It's the Older Testament, but it's the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the Jewish Bible. And so we start there. So what I want to do is revisit the schooling so that we understand when they get called, what they have, would have gone through. So let's begin with uh, Bet Sefer. So there's Bet or beth Sefer, house of the book is what this means. From age five to nine years old, you memorize Torah. So five years old, this is what you're doing in the home as they're teaching the Hebrew scriptures, and you're lo- learning the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These kids are memorizing it because they don't get to have a Bible in their home you, you are learning it from your father who has memorized it and then is teaching you, and then you might get a rabbi helping. Then you move on to Bet Talmud. So that's his house of learning. So 10 to 12 years old, the focus was on studying oral interpretations of Torah, And then memorizing the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, while also learning the family trade. So in this time, you're also learning the family trade because this is where, for the vast majority of kids, your education is going to end. And you want to be learning the family trade because then you're going to go to work, say at the end of your 12th year, now it's time to work. But for some, for the exceptional students, the best of the best, you go on Tibet Midrash. And this is house of study. Uh, house of study, so this is 13 plus years old. So 13, uh, it's secondary school, we would think of as uh, high school and then some, typically only for the advanced students. Here a student would seek out a rabbi, and that's what you did. In this schooling system, you sought a rabbi. A rabbi doesn't seek you out. You go to a rabbi and you would ask a rabbi, may I be your Talmudim, may I be your student, may I be your disciple? you ask them, then they would ask you a whole handful of questions, testing you to see how well you knew Torah and how you knew the scriptures. And they would test you to see if they thought you could be their Talmudim, which is a a rabbi is not going to call you, not going to say you can be a Talmudim of mine, unless they believed that you could do what they did. Can I lead this student to become like me. Can you do what I do? If I do not think so, then what you would often hear a rabbi say is it's clear you love God, but you will not be a Talmudim of mine. Now go and ply your family trade. Go work for your family. Go do your work. You will not be a Talmudim of mine because I don't believe you can do what I do. But as Bet Midrash continues at 18, and I mentioned this at the age of 18, you enter enter the bride chamber, which is to say you kind of step into what it is. You're gonna get married, you're gonna participate. There's a lot of layers to this that we can't get into, but you'd probably do that at 18. At 20, you would pursue a vocation, possibly in this if you're the best of the best of the best of the best. And then at age 30, the most exceptional student would be given authority to teach others, to be a rabbi. Now, when I say Jesus wasn't, uh, as we understand it, institutionally understood to be that, because we have nowhere in the scriptures where it says the institution gave him authority, but at some point, the Pharisees are asking him, the religious elite come to them and say, where did you get your authority? And his response is really fascinating. He says, where did John get his authority? Because from the text, what we understand is John the baptizer is giving him, you have to have two authority figures lay hands on you and say, you are given the authority. Jesus has two authority figures kind of anoint him, John the Baptist and O God. You you have in the baptism thing is you have this thing. So when they ask, where'd you get your authority? And he says, where'd John get his? They have to answer. And and it says in the text, if they go, well, John, it's not John. John doesn't have authority. Then they know the people are going to revolt because they love John. But if they say, well, John has authority then they're they're in, they're in trouble because then that means you have authority and we're stuck. And it says, so they asked him no more questions. <laughs> it's so great. Um, that's some other place in the Bible. It's just a lot of fun to go into. Now, when Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, they are casting a net in the lake because they are fishermen. Then he calls James and John, who, who are with their father Zebedee, who would have been their main teacher and they're working as fishermen. We'll read later then how Matthew has James and John, so they're with their dad, but later on we'll see that James and John's mom is with them, right? And their mom does this whole helicopter parenting thing and goes to Jesus and says, hey, do you think you could have a really special place on the left and the right for our sons? And she's trying to like get them a high position with him. They're hanging around. Well, it's important just to know that his mom and dad or their mom and dad are around enough. So then we learn later that Peter, in the text it says that Peter has a mother-in-law who's sick. So he is the only disciple understood to be married, which means from what we know contextually, it's likely that besides Peter, the other 11 disciples are unwed teenagers is that how you have thought of the disciples the 12 disciples peter could be in his, possibly in his 20s as like kind of the lead disciple which is often, and then the rest are unwed teenagers and because james and john their dad and her mom are hanging around that tightly it's likely they're 14 15 maybe 16 years old This is who Jesus has called and said, I'm going to change the world with you. And it also should make us think about how we treat teenagers today. It really should. Thank you, Stan and Luann and the Three Mile Project. Because... Is that how we see teenagers today? Is that how we speak to them? Is that how we call them? We believe you can be so much. We believe there's so much in you and we're calling you to that. Is that how we treat and look at teenagers today? Cuz it's all there. Jesus looked at him and said, "You come and follow me." Wooi. Then noting that the majority of scholars date the writing of Matthew's gospel after 70 CE, 70 AD. This it's after that that they have that. This would put a teenaged Matthew, him recording then this, in his 50s. Okay? Which really is actually still quite impressive. He's in his 50s because the average age of a lifespan of a male in the Galilee region is 40. That was the average age in which a male would live. So if Matthew's in his 50s, because otherwise if we're like, no, no, he was like 35 when he was called, oh, great. Then try and figure all that out when he would be recording this. And you're like, oh, wait, hold on. Right, so context is everything. It makes sense that Matthew, along with those others, teenagers Context, context, context. Now, this is important to highlight because we are now heading to the largest recorded teaching of Jesus. So, who follows him and how they follow him is of immense encouragement and challenge to you and I today, right? If that's how these teenagers follow him, we should look at that. These are young men who have likely dreamt of following a rabbi, and even as they experienced Jesus doing miracles and teachings, which would seem to communicate a revolutionary message, it would all function a very counterintuitive and countercultural way to the common assumptions of what. A Messiah would do as he's teaching and doing things and making these claims they would go this doesn't match what we would expect that to look like beginning with the idea the coming Messiah would be what a king correct they understood the coming one will be in the line of David who will be a king greater than David so as Jesus comes along as an itinerant rabbi That doesn't match up. And if you're supposed to, like, you're going to overthrow the empire that is ruling and oppressing us, Rome at the time, then it would be a king who would be recruiting a military. That's what they would be expecting. That would be the common idea. Where is the king and where is he getting his military to overcome Rome? So, an itinerant rabbi as Messiah. and he's going to launch a resistance movement by calling teenage fishermen a tax collector who's then a Jewish, Jewish boy who's kind of a trader because he's employed by the Roman Empire, taxing his own people. What, what is this? And this matters because as they follow Jesus' teaching, they will consistently, they will have to consistently rethink what they know about who the Messiah is or their previous understanding. They'll be invited to change their thinking all along the way, which is at the heart of the word, repent. Repent is to change your mind, to change your thinking about how you're living, so change the direction in which you are living. That's what repent means. Now, the the disciples would have to do that all the time because they go, we think it's going to go like this. And Jesus is doing these other things, so they're constantly having to rethink what they know. So, as Jesus turns to his followers, including his family members, they're constantly rethinking who he is. Now, it's really helpful for me, pastor, a pastor, an author, Brian Zond, um, he says this, he calls it a whole pattern. He says it's losing Jesus, finding Jesus, rethinking Jesus. I love this. We have Jesus, we lose Jesus, we seek Jesus, we find Jesus, we rethink Jesus, we grow. I don't think it can be otherwise, he says. And this just sinks into me because this has been my experience, and i got to imagine it's yours, that you are constantly having to rethink or relearn what you thought you knew, what was handed to you, New Testament scholar and teacher, Amy Jill Levine, she says it this way. I love this, how she says it. Next slide. If we count ourselves among the disciples, our task is not simply to absorb. We are human beings, not sponges. We know from both Jewish and pagan sources that disciples are active learners. They ask questions. They seek clarification. They raise objections. They seek to take their teacher's comments to the next level. Were my students, she teaches at Vanderbilt Seminary, were my students only to parrot what I said without developing their own views, then I would have failed as a teacher. Next slide. As a teacher, I can imagine Jesus thinking as he begins this, the Sermon on the Mount, what I think as I begin a class, please folks, pay attention, don't screw this up. If you don't understand something, ask. My reputation is on the line here. (laughs) She is so, I, I love Amy Jo Levine. She is brilliant and she is a riot. She's funny and quirky and she gets it in such wonderful ways but just going after it if you thought that i was told as a kid the church i grew up in they said you cannot ask questions it's disrespectful how many times i got in trouble in eager beavers or sunday school class because i was like what about this what about that and why would he do that and i remember the teacher saying, you can't just please stop don't you memorize your verse here's your snickers if you can but no questions. After, I mean, it was like, you can't do that. I had to sit down with an elder, and the elder said, you have to stop asking all these questions. You ask Jesus into your heart and let it go. And I said, then what? He said, you'll figure it out as you get older. You have to stop. 12 years old, you have to stop, Wally. Too many questions. <sighs> but How? When the very way of Jesus is inquiry, it's curiosity, it's prodding, in order for us to get a handle on what is it we're wrestling with, who are we becoming in light of this, which is an excellent frame for us as we now step into the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus steps into this teaching that he was about given from a place of action. A place of connecting with and healing a growing mishmash of humanity. So, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 and 25, we'll go here. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria... And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, which means the ten cities, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan, Perea is what it is, followed him. Now, quick, a map to give us an idea. We'll do a couple maps here to get where we are in this thing. Uh, next slide should be a map. Here we go. So you got the Galilee region, all these different kind of fishing villages in this area, Betsaida on that side. So you have that, Syria, as you can see up above. Here's the Decapolis, 10 cities down here. And so you have this area. Next slide, we'll get a, another map here. So you can see this is the region across the Jordan, the Perea here. Then you have uh, Jerusalem. So you have this in here, Judea as it was saying. So you have all these regions, people coming from all of these places, and they're gathering in this little Galilee area to follow Jesus, to see what in the world is going on. All of these things. Now, real quick, it is a fascinating mishmash of humanity. The Galilee is largely poor, Torah-observing Jewish people. That's the Galilee region. The Decapolis, the ten cities, is largely Roman and Hellenistic Greek, so it's Gentile. Syria is largely Gentile and pagan. Jerusalem is the Jewish religious elite. And Judea is a mix of Gentile and Jew. Region across the Jordan, Perea, is largely Greek and Roman. And then the list of those with, what's it say, sickness Disease, demon-possessed, paralyzed, people having seizures. these are people who have to live on the margins. They, cannot, they have to separate themselves from the community because they, they have to live at a distance because they were believed to be cursed, sin-filled, dirty. These are the people that come flocking to Jesus. This gives us some idea of who's coming, and what does he do? He heals them. This is a wild scene. And if you're a group of teenagers who have grown up in the Galilee region, and at best, like, you probably did some of these pilgrimages a couple of times a year to Jerusalem, but you live in this kind of area to see this mass of people and all of this taking place... The disciples are pulling in going, what is this guy going to do? How does he respond? Now when Jesus sees the crowds, he goes up on a mountainside and he sits down. His disciples come to him. They pull in close. And he begins to teach them. This is a subtle but stunning intimacy in this text. You see that? This crowd of all these wild people and the disciples tuck in near and Jesus looks at them and begins to teach them with all this massive crowd around them. Now, uh, next slide. To give you an idea of where... uh, Yep, there's that. We just read that. Okay, next slide. There we go. So here's the Sea of Galilee. Just want to give you an idea. We circle it here. This is where it's understood to be the Mount of Beatitudes, where this takes place. So you have Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum. So it's next to Capernaum or Capernaum is how it's pronounced because we like to be that snooby. Okay, next slide. Uh, To give you an idea, I circled it with my pen and starred it. Uh, for us. Uh, But where the Mount of Beatitudes is, so I did that because, and uh, and then a picture so we can see. This is what it looks like today. Mount of Beatitudes next to the Sea or Lake of Galilee. Real quick, stare at that. Does that look like much of a mountain to you? Huh. Well, Here's the thing. Luke's gospel calls this teaching the sermon on the plain. Oh, interesting. Same sermon he's talking about. Luke calls it sermon on the plain. Matthew calls it the sermon on the mount, calls it a mountain, it's more of an in-between, right? It's a foothill. Is what it is. Foothill. But Luke is writing to the poor. That's his audience. So he is literally trying to level the ground where the stories take place matthew wants you to think of moses so he's going to say the sermon on the mountain so you have jesus going up on a mountain to now disperse the new law so he literally carves out a mountain but the reality is it's a foothill but it's brilliant. All of it, how they're doing is they're trying to get you in a place. Now then, Jesus pulls the disciples near and he begins to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is how Jesus launches into his teaching. Now, with each blessing, when we don't have time, each blessing is, there are hyperlinks, if you will, to the Hebrew scriptures to unpack it. And it just is, we're able to see how Jesus fulfills or fills in the Torah and expands it. Is what we, we could we could spend months literally in just as what is called the Beatitudes, the blessings. But today I just want us to see the rhythm. There is a movement within these eight blessings. The first four blessings have the divine meeting people right where they are, as they are. Do you see that? It is God meeting people in their nothingness in their hurt and in their crying, in their lowliness, in their hunger and thirst for more, God meets them there. Then it turns. Then it turns. Those that are met in that place now will in turn meet others in their place as they are. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. You're going to turn outward now because you've been met and it's literally transformed your heart and now you look outwards very differently. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Not in like this only individualistic way. They will see God everywhere because of where they've been met. Now everywhere they look in all that they see and they see people and they first see the divine spark in people. It is in this, God meets people. There is no, in these blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, there's no earning, there's no winning, there's no striving, and there's no gaining. It's simply embrace, love, grace, and divine goodness absorbing one's emptiness and brokenness. This is radical, counterintuitive, and upside down, and it's soaked in undiluted grace, gift. And who heard these words? a mishmash of humanity who had just been healed, hugged, loved, and let in on something they could belong to. You know what I might call that? Good news. So there is this mass of people who are listening and following largely because they've been healed and taken care of. And then there is this young group of students who think they are going to learn what it means to lead. And Jesus says, Blessed are those who know what it means to have need, to be in need. You will be met in that need, which then will open you up to recognize the need in others, which you can now meet them in that. You see that stunning, gorgeous, brilliant, beautiful rhythm and movement. Yes, this blessing is for everyone, but get this, what Jesus knows in receiving and embracing this so good it has to be true blessing is it will reshape the human heart in the most profound, mysterious of ways, and this now transformed heart will bear fruit in how it meets other people right where they are as they are. It's a profound dance of blessing received and blessing given. A blessing found in Christ in the kingdom of heaven which is upside down to the way the rest of the world works. When we go slow in this teaching, when we go slow in the Beatitudes and just taking a peek of where we came from, contextually, who it was that Jesus is calling and who he's going to use to take the kingdom of heaven forward we catch how Jesus does not begin the standard way. He doesn't start with those who already think they're on top. He doesn't start with the valedictorians. He doesn't start with those who don't have needs. He starts with the people who know what it means to be in need, to mourn, to cry, to be lowly. He starts with them because guess who will get it better than anyone? Oh, we're going to go out and do this? Well, that's going to have to take a cracked, broken, misshaped heart so that all that goodness can fall in, fill in, and reform the heart. This blessing is not something gained through hard work or striving. How many of us right now just, what? What? This is this is West Michigan. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and Jesus said, "Blessed are the poor in spirit." Our heads melt. This blessing meets us as we find ourselves in need and are humble, open to, and honest about the very places and postures of our own needs. It is in grasping in this need in which we discover and experience then the witness of the divine. In the most profound and mysterious ways. For me, 15 years ago, I participated in a several month long study of the Sermon on the Mount, which led me in that process to lose the Jesus that I grew up with, but was really losing an idea of Jesus that I was handed. Are you with me? and then finding the Jesus who is meeting all people right where they are as they are. And that new foundation wasn't rooted in thou shall nots, but rather because you are met right where you are, as you are, in love. Oh, oh, so now go in love and meet others right where they are, just as they are this opened a whole new world for me. This foundation begins with blessing, as in all are created in the image of the divine. So Jesus uses these words to uncover the stack of lies and chaos and suffering that has buried and covered over the divine spark in each person. For me, it awakened the Christ in what it means to be Christian. It wasn't a list of abstract ideas about Jesus, it was like watching a film about love lived out in the most human, yet utterly divine way. This new foundation gave me eyes to see how the Apostle Paul adopts this frame, and and Paul will write to the church in Ephesus, which we'll understand, we'll go through the all Asia Minor and hit those churches, this letter, what we know as Ephesians, we understand it has six chapters. The first three chapters have Paul, has Paul telling the church who they are. You know how many imperatives there are in the first three chapters? None. It's who you are to those who, in Christ. In Christ is his most used words, and he tells them who they are. For three chapters, this is who you are. In Christ, this is who you are. Church, this is who you are. The next three chapters of Ephesians are, in light of who you are, this is then how you should live. But you don't do it from your effort and striving and gaining and winning. No, no, no. You do it from who you are at your foundation. So let me tell you who you are in Christ. From there, you can live this out. Paul adopts this whole idea of this is where it begins. The invitation is there. Losing Jesus, finding Jesus, rethinking Jesus which is why we often find the disciples, when we're reading, confused or responding or not responding. Like when we see them, how many times do you read your Bibles and you shake your head? What are these idiots doing? I mean, oh, is he right? Are they not paying attention? Come on, guys, really? That's your question? That's your response? That's your non-response? What are you doing? But were they thinking because the true king, the Messiah, the anointed one would be very different than what they're seeing, experiencing, correct? So they are wondering when Jesus is going to hop on the throne, when is he going to call down fire on his enemies? They ask him to do it at some point. Should we just do that? Call down fire on these people? And then when are you going to insert us where your disciples as like your royal cabinet? When does that get to happen? And Jesus says, oh, okay, gather on, guys. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. And, oh, by the way, we're going to hang out and heal really messy people. And then he's going to end with, blessed are you when people speak against you you and mistreat you because you follow me in these ways. These are the ways of the kingdom of heaven. Did Jesus have too much wine? Did Jesus fast too long and kind of short-circuit his brain? And then I take a deep breath, and I go, oh, I get it now. I'm standing right next to the disciples, needing to rethink the whole idea of the one who is to come. Because Jesus doesn't call people to believe abstract ideas about him. Jesus meets people right where they are, as they are, and then he tells them who they are and whose they are. Then he calls them to walk with him, to participate with him, in flipping the whole world right side up. Following Jesus is about helping people find their way back to their foundation, finding their way back to their essence, finding their way back to God. Friends, the invitation is participation. Welcome to the way of Jesus. Love it. This takes us to the Eucharist, which is a beautiful sacrament, but it's also a humbling practice in which we receive the bread and drink as a symbol of Jesus breaking himself open and pouring himself out for the healing of the world, which includes you and me. And then we do this in remembrance of him. We share in this together, and then we go and break ourselves open and pour ourselves out that others may find their way back to God. And if I can just take a minute and um, have a confession, when we're going to step to the table and and practice, experience the Eucharist communion this morning, um, this will be... um, down the line, this, is, this will be like probably the fifth time that I've done this this week. This will be the first time in which I do it with bread and a drink. But I've experienced this with a number of you all this week. Because I, I got to watch, listen, learn from so many of you that broke yourselves open and poured yourselves out in the name of Christ, in the power of Christ this week so that others could find their way back to God. It's not my place to tell you story after story after story that has taken place in this church by that means the people in which you all and a number of others Stepped up, stepped out, broke themselves open and poured themselves out so that other people could experience, embrace love, grace, healing, forgiveness, warmth, food, love, belonging. And so when I come to the table, all I could think about is I get to take the Eucharist again on Sunday. Because I got to sit with people, be with people, listen to people. Receive texts, phone calls, emails of stories of people in Christ, through Christ, by the way of Christ, in the love of Christ, break themselves open, pour themselves out, so that people could taste and see God is oh so good. So when we come to the table, it is a ritual, which is gorgeous and beautiful, but it's also a practice that we take in and then we go out and we do. We do so that people will experience, see God. Do you see the movement? I've been met. (laughs) I didn't earn it, win it, buy it. Nope, I was met right in my nothingness by the love of God. And then it changes me. And oh, what I want to do is spring out of bed, spring out of my house, spring out of my shoes and go and offer this same love to other people. I want you to taste and see what I've experienced because I don't have words for it. But man, when you taste it and see it, your insides, well, they will glow in some profound, mysterious, beautiful way. So, I'd love to start by having uh, our musicians come up and um, we'll have a couple people, Dave and Sue over here uh, serving and, and myself uh, and Bill Jess um, or whatever else you wanna call him. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll serve here and what we do is we'll take the bread and, and you just will hear words as, as you come, whenever you decide you want to come and feel led and you come, and you'll be offered the bread that you'll hear words, something along the lines of, this is a picture, a symbol of Jesus' body that was given, gifted, lived, and then poured out for you. This, this cup, this juice, it's a symbol of Jesus' shed, poured out so that you and I can have life to the full. There is no barrier because of what has been gifted to us, for us living into this. And so you'll hear some semblance of that. Take it. Dip the bread in the cup, or however you get the cup so you can drink it and eat this. And we do this in remembrance of the life that Jesus lived and then gave and was resurrected for us. And then we we get to leave here and do that for others. Churches, as we go forward and continue on in these next now three chapters, chapter 5 of Matthew, chapter 6, and chapter 7, those three chapters are known what is this Sermon on the Mount, which actually then there is a practical thing where it says Jesus goes up on a mountainside and sits down there's a big teaching ahead and he needs to sit down because it's going to take longer than even what I just did Uh, there are many scholars that understood that this teaching uh, likely lasted the entirety of a day if not more of course goodness what a beautiful thing I love it so he's going to sit down but here's the thing the beatitudes as we know them the blessings hang on to that frame because we're going to see it over all of the Sermon on the Mount. It's essentially, let's talk about the implications of this. You're going to see it get stacked on top of everything he says. When we live this out, when we understand we're met in this way and we meet others, it looks like this. It will work its way out like this. So if you're like, man, I would love practical teaching is all ahead. Here's how we take this idea of being met by God and then how we in turn will meet others with that kind of grace. What does that look like? Well, we're going to walk into that and it's going to be both beautiful and messy, but here's the goodness of it. It's all participatory. It's an invitation for all of us to be found by God, to sink into the love of God and to live out from the love of God for others to find their way back to God. Church, may you know that God is meeting you right where you are, just as you are that you are met in your poverty in your nothingness in your bankruptness in your zero-ness as the philosopher Dallas Willard says you are met there you are loved right where you are strengthened empowered encouraged lifted up and held together that we in turn would then live from that place as we meet others just as they are to let them know you are loved, you belong, you matter. So church, may you absorb that. May you participate in that. May you wrestle with that. And then as we go out, may you live that and give that out so that the surrounding community would taste and see that God is good. And as you do so, know that you do it through the grace and peace and power of Christ. Amen. And Have a great Sunday.